Right, good morning, um, listeners. You are listening um, to Green Left Radio on a, um, uh, 8.55 a.m. Um, in the studio today, you have Jacob and Zhang. Hello. All right, so um, I guess we can start off by um, acknowledging um, that Green Left Radio is being broadcast to you from FreeCR Studios in Smith Street, Collingwood, um, which is built on the traditional lands of the Wandry people of the Kulin Nation. Um, sovereignty was never ceded, and as with the many other First Nations across the continent, this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. All right. So, um, Zane, do you have any sort of interesting news to sort of share? Uh, I just think it was really cool that the um, Carlton United workers um, finally won after a very hard-fought campaign. Yeah. Um, it was, it's a campaign that has been, yeah, for listeners that didn't know, um, the CUB 55 workers have been reinstated in, um, as um, mentioned in the ETU statement, they voted um, to accept um, the deal, which was going back to work on their original pays and conditions. And there's also a few other sort of extra things, a bit more technical, but basically it is a victory. Um, after months of, you know, protesting and calling on the boycott of CUB products, mm. um, Finally, you listeners are probably free to drink a Carlton draft on a crisp, um, this Christmas. Because um, uh. I was originally, um, I remember originally thinking that, you know, this might go on until the New Year's and we're going to have to sort of campaign, make a special Christmas, have a CUB free Christmas. But yeah. I know the boycott has been completely caught off. Um, the 55 workers have been reinstated back on their full wages and conditions. Yep, I heard the news, and uh, I I got a um, theme song. We can't promote <laughs> brands and labels here, but I got the. Uh, <laughs> that old eighties uh, ad for the uh, for one of the proprietary beers created yeah. at uh, Carlton United Breweries. I think um what what um what. What this um, indicates to me is that you know if you um, collectively unite and struggle and you know fight, you yeah. can you can win. And um, mm. I, I congratulate all um, the ETU and the Australian Metal Workers Union for you know keeping up the fight and mm. uh, um, keeping it staunch. Yeah, as that. And I think it's got um, it's it's got sort of ramifications for workers in other industries because it's not just in the brewing industry that employers will try and sack a bunch of, you know, sack a big slab of the workforce and then offer them their jobs back on contracts so that there's no job security and with a reduction in pay. So it's a, it's an important victory for workers in other industries. Uh, as you say, setting that example, don't take it. If, if your employer tries this on, get together, take direct action, pick at your workforce, organise a boycott, you know, Put yeah. the foot down. I think, um, well, um, the last, it's interesting, the, the, the only thing I could sort of say is it sort of came out of nowhere. Like, I, I read the announcement and it was sort of like, whoa, and it's like amazing because yeah. the last um, protest didn't really feel like we had a chance of winning, but the fact that we won is just amazing in itself. Mm. Um, I guess moving on to some other news, um, many of um, probably, we featured this in um, last week's program. 
Um, but there's a big sort of action of teachers um, and the AUU getting together um, on next Monday. Um, teachers, around over 500 teachers at um, different schools across New South Wales and Victoria are going to be wearing um, a T-shirt, um, Teachers for Refugees. They've organised an action called around this where they're going to be wearing T-shirts um, at work today. Where they, um, sorry, where they, um, where, which says "Close the camps, let the, um, bring them here," and then at the back it says "Teachers for Refugees." So, nice. uh, a group of organised teachers are, are wearing these T-shirts at school, and they'll also be having, um, from my understanding, specific lessons around mandatory detention and refugees. Cool. Um, so this is um, really great, um, but of course. As so it's the right time of year for it as well. Yeah. Once you've got all that sort of formal classwork out of the way, this time of year you can sort of be, I can remember back when I was in high school, you'd be maybe sitting around watching videos or it's kind of, it's absolutely the right time of year to squeeze in a bit of extracurricular. Yeah. It's because teachers um, are, are mostly seen in this um, time, spending their time writing reports up. Mm. Um, but anyway, um, like any political action um, regarding challenging um, the government's um, unjust mandatory detention policy, it has not been without controversy mm. um, with um, Conservative, um, with, the, with the Malcolm Turnbull being quite um, adamant against it, um, basically saying that teachers should be focused, focusing more on teaching English and maths. Of course, potentially it was um, Simon Boone. Um, Simon Birmingham. He said that, but, but they've all really been saying the same thing. But basically, the, the argument is that teachers shouldn't be standing up against unjust government policy um, mm. because they should be spending time you know, teaching English and maths. Um, they sh- politics should be kept out of the classroom at all times. And, of course, um, um, uh, one, of the, one of the activists for Teachers for Refugees, Lucy um, Holland, who we interviewed on Green Left Radio last week, has responded that, you know, um, we're, we're not, we're not fo- um, shoving down our views, um, down our students' throats. We are being complete. We're giving um, students the information from a various different um, sources, and it's and it's on the onus is on them to come to their own conclusions. Hmm. Um, you know, and um, another kind of uh, argument that's being put forward is, uh, and this is kind of a ridiculous one, is that the reason for the lowering of Standards in teaching, like the poor quality sort of outcomes, or so um, that the conservative, this is what the Herald Sun is reporting, is due to the fact that teachers are spending too much time participating in political causes and not. Yeah, isn't that grubby? And and I saw that, and it just made me fume. My my dad uh, retired now, but he was a TAFE teacher, and my mum's a high school art teacher, and is also involved in social justice different sort of causes like that and there's a real supporter of refugee rights they both work really hard um you know i'm sure you work really hard as well at yeah, i'm an job. educator but i'm not a teacher yet <laughs> yeah but I, everyone i know who works as a teacher works really hard and the taxpayer gets exceptionally good value for their you know small amount of their taxes that go towards that and for this conservative government to turn around after getting rid of the Gonski model, consistently under-resourcing schools 
so that there's now a situation where there's kind of dropping grades. No wonder teachers are stressed out, class sizes are too big, there's, you know, textbooks are falling apart, and then they turn around and go, oh, grades are falling because you're spending too much of your time organising refugee protests. What a load of rubbish. Yeah. And the specific thing is it's only one day. It's a specific action for one day. Yeah. And um, um, for listeners' information, there will be um, all the teachers who have participated in this action in Victoria will be going to the State Library at 6pm um, this Monday, for a te- um, and it's going to be the Teachers for Refugees vigil. Um, it'll feature a range of different speakers, um, one speaker from Teachers for Refugees, probably a speaker from Refugee Action Collective and, and several other refugee advocacy groups. Um, so, yeah, stay tuned to that, and um, it'll be interesting um, to see um, what the response is um, this Monday um, to these teachers, because there's already a lot of controversy, and, of course, the action hasn't even happened, so yeah. it's going to be interesting to see what happens next. And um, the good thing um, is, despite the fact there's, you know, threats of... Um, I think some conservative governments have been thrown around threats of dismissal or teachers, this is breaking their contracts and policy. Um, the good news is um, the Australian Education Union is completely behind this action and will um, presumably be defending any workers who get any threats um, for de- participating. Yeah. Well, what are they going to do? Sack, you know, sack hundreds of teachers? On the basis of them presenting a political um, viewpoint. Yeah, on the basis of them... Uh, not wanting kids to be locked in concentration camps. Yeah. Oh, sorry, you're sacked for having and, that. And, and, and as I commented before, I made this um, point on um, social media, you know, uh, as educators, you know, we're expected to, you know, teach the values of, you know, respect, inclusion and being, or basically being nice to each other. Mm. Um, these values, and, you know, when we call out, the government for not upholding these values, which they aren't with their mandatory detention um, policies. Mm. Um, why, why is it that we're all of a sudden we're accused of pushing an agenda down children's throats? Of course, there's a lot of things, and one of the things that you've, um, many listeners, if you're following sort of a you know, how the government um, responds to education, you know, education is not a political because the government's always trying to put their hands on it. Okay. I mean, something as simple as Safe Schools, which is an anti-bullying program, you know, for gender diverse and um, gay sh- um, children, is um, politicised as like you know pushing a radical left agenda. Mm. Um, and of course, that get, um, fret, um, th- those programs face threats of being cut by the go- by these conservative governments, all because they're politicising. Oh, you know, anti some what amounts to an anti-bullying program. Yeah. With the underlying idea being that, oh, well, if there's each a homophobia in society, then the uh, apolitical thing to do is to ignore that homophobia and to let, you know, gay and lesbian and queer kids, kids with a different understanding of, of their gender who don't necessarily feel like their, you know, body they were born into represents they are... You should grow up in this homophobic, transphobic society and just cop it on the chin and we're not going to give you any sort of way of trying to comprehend why people are hostile to you and we're not going to try and encourage the other kids not to pick on you. And and that's the apolitical thing to do is to just ignore that homophobia Mm. and transphobia. Yeah. 
Um, I think um, I might just go play a quick announcement and then we'll go on to another news story because there's actually, in the past week, there's actually been a lot of positive news stories. Um, the first one that um, we've talked about, the first positive news story, but maybe um, after this announcement we'll have another discussion about the next sort of positive victory um, that's happened in the past a week in politics. Word. Okay, you're back um, on Green Left um, Weekly Radio. Um, um, on 8.55 a.m. Um, at 7.15 a.m. this morning. Um, so, as I was um, saying to listeners, um, there's been a number of positive um, news stories, um, one of the first of which um, has been the CUB um, victory. Um, but now, internationally, this, I would argue, later on, is actually a bit of a partial victory. It's not a complete victory yet, um, but many listeners here would know that um, on Green Left Radio we've been discussing a lot about um, the struggle against the Dakota Access Pipeline, um, um, which was a proposed oil drill that was going to be built underneath the Missouri River uh, and on Native American land. And as a, in response, there's been huge protests um, of Native Americans and supporters in standing in solidarity um, defending um, the line and of course amidst that they had received um, lots of mass police repression um, but now um, basically what has happened in is this happened last Monday um, and it reads here an article um, printed in Green Left Weekly um, the US Army of Corps denied the Dakota Access Pipeline a permit um, to drill underneath the Missouri River um, the decision officially halts construction of the U, um, 3.8 US billion oil pipeline that has faced months of resistance from the Standing Rock in North Dakota and members of more than 200 Indigenous nations from across America, as well as their non-native allies. Um, in response to the Army's decision, um, Standing Rock um, Theox Chairman Dave Ark Bolt too said, we wholeheartedly support the decision of the administration and commend with the utmost gratitude it took on the part of President Obama, the Army Corps, the Department of Justice and the Department of Interior to take steps to correct the course of history and do the right thing. And he added, we especially thank all the other tribal nations and jurisdictions who stood in solidarity with us and we stand ready to stand with you if, you, if, if and when your people are in need. Um, the decision is a big win, but does not end the issue, with the Army Corps pointing to the ongoing discussions over r- routes over the pipeline. So essentially what has happened is um, is they've, um, they've, got, they've decided not to um, build the pipeline in, in the specific area that was considered sacred Native American land, and they're actually in the process of trying to investigate where they can build it. Um, so... It's not the victory we can want, but it's mm. still a partial victory, and it is the result of mass resistance. Mm. And I think that um, that mass resistance that is built over um, um, over preventing this Dakota pipeline should be pushed forward and try to prevent that um, Dakota pipeline from being built ever. Um, because in you know in this age of you know climate change, we cannot afford um, mm. to be looking towards um, building more. For, um, our oil pipelines and fossil um, coal power plants. We need to make a transition, a strict shift transition to renewable energy and sustainable sort of energy sources. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, pretty inspiring stuff to be able to halt that, especially at such a sort of. Um, it's not like they're fighting the thing at planning stages. The, all of the gear is out, and they're physically building this pipeline right next to where the protesters are. So it's a pretty 
pretty exciting stage of the game to be able to to get, as you say, at least a partial victory like this. Yeah, and um, there was, as I sort of mentioned in last week's program, there's been lots of interesting dynamics in the movement. There was over 2,000 army veterans who all travelled um, to the site um, mm. to defend it from um, the police. And of course, the military, military. Well, it's a bit, it's interesting in the United States in this context. It's a bit hard to distinguish between the police and the army because they both seem to be one and the same. Mm. Um, I, from my understanding, there was police repressing it, but there was also military involved. And of course, there's, but the other issue in the United States is that the police are heavily militarized. Mm. Um, and but that's um there's and there was also a very um interesting thing and you can sort of watch videos of it on social media or online if you so um but there was actually a, a a very symbolic kind of ceremony between US veterans and the Native American elders. Um basically what happened was um the veterans sort of did a sort of a poly, uh, apology to, you know, the Native American um um Native Americans, you know, for you know, the history of dispossession and, you know, genocide. Mm. And I think that was a very, I think that is a very symbolic sort of um, um, gesture of, you know, solidarity and, mm. um, you know, bringing, you know, and uni- uniting um, people. Mm. Yeah, it's really good to see. And I think there's this, um, I don't know, there, there can be this idea that people who've served in the US military are really, I don't know, right wing or they, they really support imperial invasions of other countries but and and undoubtedly that is the case for a lot of people who are in the military but in the US it's also the case that you've got the army going around and recruiting poor people and saying hey don't live on starvation wages don't be working poor join the army you'll get paid a decent wage and we'll look after you and uh, inevitably, there's a whole bunch of people who either in the course of fighting overseas or once they come back, they reflect on that and go, this is really <laughs> horrible what I've, what I've been a part of and the government doesn't speak for me. So. Yeah. Well, actually, that's interesting. Anecdotally, in my experience, I have actually two friends from the United States who have, um, who um, one of them's currently serving in the Air Force and the other was previously in um, the military, and they've actually both been radicalised as a result of the experiences of being in the military. They're much, they have very progressive and very left-wing views, and and vehemently anti-war, and um, as mm. well, well, especially my friend who's former Iraqi war veteran, um, he's completely anti-war. Mm. Um, so it is, yeah, that is that is true. You know, you can't just make this assumption that all. You know, rats are, you know, right-wing and reactionary. Huh. Um, I guess another... Um, um, going back, going to sort of local um, Australian sort of politics, um, especially in Victoria, um, hey, um, Zane, have you heard about sort of these recent sort of reforms that Daniel Andrews is proposing around law and order? I saw a thing yesterday about taking bloody DNA samples of people... Uh, without a court order. Yeah. Um, so, for listeners, um, there's been What's a number of, a number of um, media release statements, and this is all continuing in, um, following on from actually some previous things we've done in this program around, you know, racial um, inju- um, injustice and um, police discrimination. Mm. Um, but Daniel Andrews has released um, a series of statements, uh, media releases, um, arguing, um, stating that he will 
um, put um, millions of dollars into funding for more police officers. Um, and then, of course, that police will now have the power to, um, arrest, um, to collect a suspect's DNA without a warrant. And, of course, that is a suspect, um, not... Uh, you know, so it's anyone. Yeah, it's not like so an alleged, alleged criminal um, huh. where they have actual evidence backing the criminality of this. It's actually a suspect, and a suspect is not guilty until he, until they are proven hmm. in court. Hmm. Um, and so this, and all this, all this has like a context. And you know, in the in the the hell, there's always um, if we did an interview with. Anthony Kelly from um, the Kensington Legal, but this is all around this sort of context of you know there's this whole myth around um, the Apex Gang, mm. um, which is basically you know arguing that you know there's a crime wave in Victoria that all the evidence suggests is there isn't, but it's all when it comes to the reporting in the Murdoch Press, it's all racialized African Australian use or, mi- or they're migrants from from these from Africa and um, some of the pushes by the conservative media is that we should have the right to deport people um, if they're migrants and say they commit a crime uh, and it's also this sort of yeah it's basically arguing that the rate of crime has increased therefore we need we need more police despite the fact there's actually not any strong evidence that suggests there is a it's crime it's always the answer isn't it Jacob no matter what's going on in the world <laughs> more police that'll fix it and but it it also you know um it also does not actually address the f- the fundamental root causes of crime anyway mm. and it's mm. like more police what about you know what about more money for public housing what about more money um in you know um helping out you know the poor the poorest communities like in the in the northwest suburbs like in broad meadows which is suffering massive unemployment mm. um and of course um you know evidence shows in you know say the united states when there's a cycle of poverty and um, high unemployment, well, it shouldn't surprise yeah. you that... Um, People engage in petty crime to try and, like, get some stuff. Yeah. And it's not rocket science. Yes. <laughs> Whereas in uh, countries like Scandinavia, where there's a really strong uh, welfare safety net, where there's a really high minimum wage, and everyone's you know, lives fairly relative to somewhere like Australia or the U.S., lives a more comfortable existence, you have much, much lower rates of petty crime. Yeah. And, uh, of course, one of the things I respect with um, the Greens um, right recently released a policy, I think around a few weeks ago, calling for full decriminalisation of all drugs, which mm. I think is a very brave and it's a very sound you know, policy in actually addressing... Because, you know, the problem with drugs is not a criminal issue... It's actually a health, health issue, issue. Huh. Um, and but the fact that it's been criminalised is actually has been more than just a giving a political um, giving an excuse to give more police powers, um, which who aren't actually solving the problem on drugs. And when you look at the war on drugs in the United States, it's essentially a war on the underclass. It's not hmm. a war on drugs because. They've done nothing. Um, all these increased militarization of police and so on. All it has is led to more. It hasn't actually reduced the crime of the drug-related crimes. It hasn't reduced the number of cells in the streets. It essentially, it has just done nothing. Um, but it cre- increased. All it's done is put, you know, hundreds of thousands more people in the prison system. 
in the US. Yeah. And, and the, the US jails a higher proportion of its population than any other country on the planet. And then they want to go around and go, oh, Cuba, oh, despotic dictator, oh, locking up people in jail. Yeah. Hang on, what about all the black and Latino people locked up in yeah. US jails? And that's going back to sort of the local sort of um, sourcings around Daniel Andrews' reforms. Is this is actually um, a scary kind of precedent or way to go because, you know, Australia hasn't gotten to that level of the United States, but these are sort of pushing in the direction, especially the increased militarised police. If you go to, say, an anti-racism rally, like the one I went to the last time, there was, like, police in full body mm. gear. Um, and ninja turtle outfits. Ninja, yeah, basically ninja turtle outfits. Mm. And you kind of question, you know, wh- why do we need this excessive force? Is there, is there currently, like, some kind of martial law happening in Australia where there's riots, well, Melbourne, um, this is because this is all very, all this we're talking about is very specific to Melbourne because, um, and is there like a big sort of, are there riots happening in Melbourne every week or something or Mm. complete civil unrest? Why do we need, and of course... An army of Ninja Turtles. Yeah. (laughs) And, And, And next, they'll have their little swabs to get your DNA so that Big Brother can have a database of everyone's DNA. So they'll come there in their Ninja Turtle outfits to the protest, they'll swab you in the face with their little DNA thing, and then they'll spray you in the face with that horrible orange stuff. <laughs> it's just calm, just completely ridiculous. Um, now we're going to go into some international news um, from featured in the latest Green Left Weekly. Um, one of the more interesting articles that is um, being featured in um, Green Left Weekly this week um, is uh, on South Korea, um, as in this article written by Yong Soo Wong. Um, he writes here, this article is titled, South Korea Shaken by Government Scandals and New Civic Revolution. Um, many poly listeners uh, might have seen on the television and the media there's been mass protests um, against... Uh, against the current president of um, South Korea, um, basically calling on him to resign. Um, he's basically been um, he's been under pressure to resign after a series of exposures of um, of her shameful scandals related to Shu Susu, her friend of 40 years and daughter of Reverend, who um, who allegedly dominated Young Park um, after a 19 after the 1975 assassination of her mother. Every day, the media is running stories on scandals and corruption allegations. Meanwhile, people are still um, angry with Park's indifference towards the victims of the 2014 Swirl Ferry disaster, which involved mostly high school students on a school trip to Drew Island. Um, immediately after the ac- accident, Park was missing for seven hours. So far, she and her courts have refused to tell the truth. Only recently, the Blue House, the president from Renzi, publicised some information which looks untrue. Um, but now, in response to these sort of scandals, um, citizens have like held a series of huge candlelight rallies. This culminated in the November 26 rally, which gathered, um, which gathered more than um, which gathered more than 1.9 million people nas- nationwide, including 1.5 million um, in downtown Seoul, to demand Park resign immediately. Um, in December, now, goes to give a sort of historical context to all these events. Um, he writes here, in, um, in December 2012, Park won the presidential election as a candidate of the Conservative Sonuri Party, beating Moon Jae-in, the candidate of the Liberal Democratic Party, 
um, the margin by a narrow margin. Um, Park was the um, first president to win a majority vote since direct elections were introduced in 1987 when a new democracy was born in South Korea after three decades of struggles for democratisation. Um, Park had you know, substantial support from older conservative people um, who are nostalgic for her father, who was an ex-dictator, Park Chong-hee. Um, these old generations and new um, right extremists regard him as a national saviour who salvaged um, South Koreans from long-running poverty. Um, you know, it says right here that um, Park's voters had high expectations for her, especially because of economic hardships and growing economic polarisation under long years of neoliberalism. In spite of substantial support, um, the president here has obviously been filled with troubles. Um, her electoral victory was in doubt because um, agents of the National Information Service got involved in the presidential campaign by spreading misinformation against the opposition candidate. Um, her right-wing agenda and incomprehensible decisions made people angry, fueled by such things such as the Sewell Ferry incident, the sudden stoppage of North-South Corporation, the Blue House document leak scandal, the public edition plan for government-sanctioned history textbook, and the agreement with the Japanese government on the so-called comfort woman. Many of these, um, these government policies seem, seemed out of context. Her model of the creative economy and her remark that, that Korean unification is a long shot, a curiosity that one nobody can un explain or understand, not even self. Um, her, you know, he writes here, you know, her personal style of hidden solitude created an image of a lonely princess impossible to communicate with. Her personal wish to read legitimize her father's achievements provoked huge repulsion from the um, victims of political repression under Park Chung-hee's dictatorship. Um, fundamentally, you know, one of the, what's come out of this is um, there's been doubts about her personal qualification as a leader and has been a constant source of rumours um, and suspicion. Um, I guess now going in, you know, um, the, in the context of all this exposure of um, political and personal scandals, it's shocked the whole country, you know, the popular support that she once had has plummeted. Um, in November, polls showed her support was less than 5%, which is an unprecedented collapse in popularity. Um, the, um, the, the protests have constantly, consistently demanded that Park step down um, from presidency. And, um, but of course, the date, um, there's been a date. Um, yeah, on November 5th, there was a the first huge rally was joined by 200,000 people. On November 12, more than uh, 1 million candlelights were hit. This date has been set as a day for you know, national upsurge by the Korean Confederation of Trade Union and its allies. However, candle-carrying citizens overwhelmingly organised labour. This rally was uh, regarded as biggest since 1987 when the three-week-long um, mobilisations brought down the Shong Do Wong dictatorship and won democracy. Uh, November 19th rally, um, rallies were planned for major cities nationally, and of course that will rally in Seoul was joined by up to 700,000 people nationally, about one million people with candles. Um, of course, is one of the other uh, interesting thing about it is it seems like a lot of these responses, you know, it does seem to be quite apolitical, like a lot in a sense, but it is political. But the main thing is there doesn't seem to be any talk of a sort of radical sort of political left sort mm. of mobilising as a result of it because, you know, there's discontent, discontent with the current president. But, of course, the question is, what is the political alternative to the current ruling president? Um, and he writes here that um, the radical left outside of the institutional 
politics is so marginalised that um, re- um, that revolutionary voices are hardly audible. A badly weakened labour movement is at loss on how to intervene in the candlelight struggle, even under its militant leadership. A broad coalition of social and civic movement has also played a limited role. The framework has been set, unfortunately, by the conservative measures' um, hegemony. Um, faced with these... Um, these unprecedented um, scandals. The ruling um, Sonora Party has gone into terminal crisis. Its leader, Lee Jun-hong, has tried everything to defend Park through his own leadership, has been severely weakened. Um, on the other hand, the two main opposition parties have criticised the Park government and demanded her resign, urged that she would resign. Um, the, however, the opposition full, avoided fully joining the candlelight marches and were reluctant to initiate the impeachment process. Um, the de- and in terms of like the balance of forces, um, the Democratic Party has 123 seats and the People's Party has free, free, 38 seats against Sonora's 122 in a 300-seat parliament. More than 200 votes are needed to impeach the president. Thus, the opposition needs at least 30 votes from her current party, um, as well as six from the Progressive Justice Party that outlived its pro-North Korea rival, um, the United Progressive Party, w- w- um, which um, was dispersed by constitutional court rulings in 2014, and its key leaders jailed under notorious security law. A November 21st meeting of opposition leaders discussed the impeachment process. Given Park's resignation seems impossible, the opposition has no um, choice but to take the impeachment course. Um, but I guess um, he writes here, you know, in s- because you know these mass sort of pro- protests. In spite of um, uh, of its limits, the 2016 candlelight revolution is another step in the Korean people's historical insurgency into democracy. It follows the proud predecessors of the April 1960 revolution, um, the Gwangju uprising in 1980, the June uprising and workers' great struggle in 1997, the general strike in 1996 to 1997, and the 2008 Korean um uh, upright candlelight uprising. Hmm. So yeah, that's um, just some news from um, what's happening in Korea and also the different sort of context for the big sort of protests that have been happening. They're basically calling on the, the current Conservative Prime Minister or President to resign. Hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting that there's not a sort of uh, organised radical left <coughs> um, party of, of substantial weight, but nonetheless, you've got the the trade unions and these different organisations that are able to organise some massive um, demonstrations. So, um, but yeah, it's all, it's, all, um, it's all like a maturing kind of movement in a sense because um, uh, like going to the United States, you know, Black Lives Matter started off as simply protesting against police brutality and it's quite, and it was a very spontaneous kind of thing where it had jewelry like mobilised thousands upon ten thousands of people mm. in different capital um, cities around America, the United States. Um, but now, you know, as the organising has deepened, um, it's starting to, you know, adopt policy programs. They now have a political program where they have policies addressing economic injustice and mm. um, racism. Um, they're not just saying um, stop the deaths of um, stop the killings of, of, of black people by police officers. They're calling on um, practical measures that will actually ensure that it never happens again and, hmm. and um, tackling the systematic um, problems that actually lead to to the killings again. So it's all 
Yeah, yeah matter of um, intrigue. There's actually some interesting articles, I guess, um, about South Korea. I think there's a um, many um, listeners might not know that we have um, Green Left Weekly um, is affiliated with a site called Links, um, which is an international sort of journal. It's a basically a platform for different socialist and left groups to sort of post about what's happening in international politics. Mm. And on the website right now, there's a lot of different articles on South Korea. Uh, and the situation and the political situation there. So if you head over to links.org.au, um, um, basically more information. Yeah, on yeah. Excellent articles there. And Green Left has uh, shorter, well, in inverted commas, shorter articles, maybe 800, 1,000 words. Links has uh, typically got some, not always, but generally longer articles that, that go into quite a bit of depth. So... Yeah, if you're interested in South Korean politics or anywhere else, check out links because you can really uh, get some good information, get a really good rundown and learn a lot about the politics of country X, Y or Z with some of those articles there. Okay, um, I'll go. Hello, hello. It is Friday morning, the 9th of December. Okay, so as I said, we have um, more international news um, to be shared from Green Left Weekly. Um, there's an article here written by um, Tony Iltis, um, our international editor for Green Left Weekly, um, who is writing here on um, Syria and basically kind of like the different sort of things that are happening in uh, with uh, the article is titled With ISIS on the Back Fruit, Turkey Moves Against the Kurds. And so Tony here writes that Syria's um, five-year war is reaching a turning point. Um, basically, he points out that you know ISIS is on the back foot; its territory is declining, as is in Iraq. But of course, um, as with Iraq, the defeat of ISIS is likely to create new conflict over what comes next. Um, and he writes here: since 2012, the northeastern Syria city of um, Aleppo has been divided between the city's west, held by the regime of the illegal dictator Bashir al-Assad and its caste held by a fractionist coalition of predominantly Islamist rebel groups. Previously, um, this larger city of Syria has been the location of some of the worst violence. Both sides have used siege tactics and artillery bombardments that have targeted civilians. Um, the regime has air power at its disposal as most civilian casualties have been in the rebel-held east. Um, but both regime and rebel sides have shown scant regard for civilian safety or for international law that is supposed to regulate warfare, such as rules prohibiting the routine torture and execution of prisoners of war. Um, for four years, the fighting in Aleppo, despite its intensity, has consisted of offences and counteroffences that have left the military balance unchallenged. Um, it has been an extremely war of attraction. However, since two November 25th, Tony writes here, a government offence has driven the rebels from at least half the territory they controlled in Aleppo. Um, of course, it sort of writes here that, you know, um, it's been, you know, this conflict has, you know, from the different groups that are happening in Syria, and it is quite a complex conflict, you know, with all these different groups. That, basically, there's, there's this ruling Syrian um, government, who mm. is sort of headed by Ashar, and then there's the sort of rebels um, at below who um, have mixed populations because basically a lot of them are fundamentalist Islamist groups and a lot and there's yeah but there's also sort of uh, defectors from the military and yep. the and the government yeah and, and, and then some civilian like 
basically sort of I guess left wing um yeah rebel groups so yeah it's it's quite um mixed yeah and um so what but basically because of this multi-sided civil war it's you know severe has basically as Tony writes here become a slaughterhouse you know about mm. half the population has been displaced with about four million leaving Syria to become refugees mm. and seven million fleeing to different parts of Syria and interesting on a different topic um there's been there's an interesting argument and it's not written here in this argument but I sort of bring it up but it's um and this has lots of ramifications if this is true. But, you know, the famous sort of scientist, um, Bill Nye, had an interesting analysis of the Syrian war and he actually attributes it to climate change um, because basically um, because of the, cli- the change in climate in Syria, there's been uh, a lack of water, drinking yeah. water. And, of course, then what that leads is to a war of resources. Of course, I need to read it more. And it's, but he basically... Yeah. Him, he basically... Um, attributes climate change to be one of the main causes of this conflict. And, of course, if um, if that is true, um, then it has serious ramifications for a lot of future conflicts as climate change kind of accelerates, and especially in these sort of um, poorer countries where there's going to be a big sort of um, fight hmm. over drink resources such as drinkable water and even things like land because lots of areas will be submerged. Yeah, there's an interesting book about that called Climate Wars. It's by Gwyn Dyer, who's a uh, geopolitical analyst from Canada. Some of it's, like, pretty off the wall, but the the basic premise of this book is that, yeah, as you say, as climate change bites, you're going to have a major conflict. I have a friend uh, who's of Syrian background, and he sort of said, whilst climate change is a, a, a factor in the Syrian conflict, you wouldn't... It's it's a bit far to kind of relate the whole thing back to climate change. Mm. I mean, ultimately, it was part of the Arab Spring. There's a brutal dictatorship there. People got jack of the dictatorship and they're like, you know, what's going on with the Assad family? Let's kick this mob out. Mm. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's horrible. It's really... Um, it's really distressing and disturbing to see um, the the carnage in Syria, and I'd, I'd uh, some on the left have uh, kind of support the Assad regime, but I've, I mean, to me, it's it's a it's an example of competing imperialisms. Mm. I, I think yeah. you've got Russian imperialism backing up the regime on one side. Yeah. They want to hang on to their sort of um, their military um, base in the region that they've mm. got by virtue of being uh, chummy with the Assad regime. Yeah. And then you've got the US imperialism on the other side. Yeah. And then you've got Turkey. They're wanting to attack the and constrain the Kurds, and that's part of the. Well, that's what that's what this article is going to now, which I'll go. Um, sort of read out sort of now, um, but basically the main battlefield opponents, you know, basically, yeah, things in Syria are really bad, as you sort of, um, Tony writes here, but basically the main battlefield opponent of ISIS um, that um, Tony um, in this article that's written is that the Syrian Democratic um, Forces, the largest parts of this left-wing military coalition are the People's Defence Units, YPG, and the women which are based in the Kurdish community, um, SD. SDF operations routinely um, have um, air support from the US-led coalition of Western powers carrying out airstrikes in Syria. 
though since September last year, Russia has been conducting its own airstrikes in Syria. Um, Syria under Assad was Russia's closest ally in the Middle East, and Russia airstrikes are part of the regime's military option operations. The rebel militias in East Aleppo are regular targets of Russian airstrikes, which have taken its high civilian toll. The regime has its own air force that is less military effective, but because of its crude and discriminate um, ordinance, it was, has killed a higher number of non-combatants. Um, currently in Syria, there are at least four claimants to dominant authority, but the number of local and foreign actors in the conflict is higher. Um, firstly, there's, a, there's the Assad regime, um, a dynastic um, totalitarian states before 2011. Since the uprising has lost territorial control over much of the country, its armed forces have become dependent on paramilitary militias, Iranian forces and Iranian recruited parliamentaries. And of course, there's, there's also um, another side conflict. Secondly, there's the he writes, this, this is the Syrian National Coalition, a collection of squabbling exiled politicians that is recognised by most Western powers as the legitimate government of Syria. In fury, the SNC is represented internally by the Free Syrian Army and allied moderate um, Islamic... Sorry, but Tony's sort of perspective is in reality these forces are numerous independent fighting units and shifting alliances, sometimes fighting each other and all having a contemptuous disregard for N. SNC directives. Um, the West gave arms to some of these free Syrian army groups, mostly through the West's allies in the region, particularly Saudi Arabia, Qatar and Turkey. These states all have their own ambitions, not always coinciding with those of their Western imperialist sponsors. So basically there's, he's sort of making a point that there's all these, they're giving um, funds to the Free Syrian sort of different forces for you, but it's sort of they all have different. There's three or four different sort of countries that all have different interests, mm. um, which is kind of like a bit of a mess when you think about it. Um, but of course, the conflict has also attracted Sunni extremists from around the world. Many of these groups are anti-Western, and the Western um, establishment designation of moderate Islamist applies to these groups that are perceived as pro-Westerns. Um, one out of these Sunni Islamic movement came the third. Climate to government authority, ISIS, while its ambitions to form a global covenant are fantastical, since early 2014 it carved out a contentious territory in Iraq and Syria, although this is now shrinking in both countries. In support of worldwide terrorism, advertising of its own atrocity makes ISIS the perfect pretext for any power wishing to intervene in Syria and or Iraq. But then, um, sort of now, there's sort of like an alternative to this, and that is sort of in the Kurds. Um, Tony writes, the fourth governing entity in is the Democratic Federation of North Syria, Rojava Syrian Democratic Council. Its armed forces are the SDF. It originated in the 2012 revolution in Rojava, which took advantage of the withdrawal of raging forces from the region to defend Aleppo and the capital, Damascus. The SD, SDF is unique among the groups fighting Syria because it's accountable to democratic civilian authority. The Rojava revolution has created a unique form of democratic self-administration that emphasises women's liberation, grassroots democracy, ecological and humanist socialism, religious tolerance, and these ideals have enabled it to broaden its appeal beyond the Kurdish population and what it originated. Um, but, of course, the Rojava revolution was extremely threatening to the authoritarian um, Turkish regime of um, Aragon. This is not due to its ideological links, not only 
Um, this is due, not, not it's, to its ideological link, not only to the guerrilla and civil resistance of Bulgaria, but to the Turkish Democratic Left, that's the People um, Democratic Party, whose parliamentarians have been recently um, arrested en masse. Um, but but it sort of in response in in sort of like basically in sort of talking a bit about Turkey and we'll call you finish this up um, to move on to the activist calendar. Um, Aragon was initially interested in the Syrian conflict due to a desire to influence a post Assad regime. Now crushing the the Kurdish led revolutionary movement is its key objective. Um, this explains Turkish support for various Islamist groups, including ISIS and Turkish support. Explains the rapid growth of ISIS after 2013. But of course, there's an uneasy alliance between the SDF and the US-led coalition, begin, which began after the siege of Kobani in 2014. The US appeared happy at first for US ISIS to offer platitudes while watching ISIS crush Kobani, only moving afterwards to fight ISIS. Such a cynical agenda, however, was thwarted by the resistance of the YPG and um, YPJ, leaving the US little option but to cooperate with the main force successfully battling ISIS. Um, the SDF, for its part, has needed to counter Turkish supplied firepower. The US was not willing to lift the blockade of Rojava and pose from Iraq as well to remove the SDF allies from the list of territory or enable the SDF to procure heavy weapons but offers it. While this alliance has persisted on the military politically, the Western powers have continued to dim- um, diplomatically recognise the SNC and include the MSD from international talks in Syria. Um, but anyway, in conclusion, sort of um, the the neighbourhood has been under siege and received no local authority. <laughs> and if Hawa news, um, basically the neighbourhood has been under siege of Syria and received no supplies since September last year. Local authorities are therefore struggling to deal with the nutritional, medical, and and other needs of the refugees and have appealed for international assistance. Alright, so that's. There's still more probably to, in that article that I probably wasn't able to communicate, but hmm. it is quite a conflict, complicated conflict, and um, you can read more about it um, in the Green Left Weekly. Hmm. And that's still developing. I, I think that article was written before... Um, I, I was reading some reports yesterday, and it looks like there's been a big kind of uh, uh, breakthrough or victory by the um, Assad regime and the the Russian military against the rebels in Aleppo. It's it's um but still yeah it's uh, it's very um it's a very yeah, convoluted kind of conflict and it's sort of but it's like basically yeah as I, I would say I definitely would not support the Assad regime but I definitely at the same time would not support some of the fundamentalist Islamist groups because you know if they get in power mm. it's probably it's no different than say ISIS. And of course, the US is playing a very cynical role in all this because, um, you know, um, and this is, happens in the history of, of US imperialism. Mm. They cynically go on about, you know, the war on terror um, and, you know, how we need to take away our civil liberties and we need to defeat ISIS. Yet um, the United States has a history of giving money and arms to fundamentalist mm. Islamic groups all and the way tra- and training in urban terrorism. Yeah, and or um, or going back since um, Afghanistan when they gave money to what is now the Taliban mm. to, to the Mujahideen def- to defeat um, to defeat the Soviet Union. Mm. Um, of course, it's going to be interesting going. We haven't mentioned Donald Trump on this program, uh, but don't, um, today, but Donald Trump is indicating he ha- wants to 
to adopt a different foreign policy than what um, Hillary Clinton, especially in relation to Syria. Mm. In fact, he wants to get a bit more cushy with um, Russia, apparently. Uh, and, of course, the Russian um, government apparently celebrated when Donald Trump won, whatever that means. So it's going to be interesting. So stay tuned for some developments in that um, because... Mm. Um, Donald Trump gets into gets Trump, a in president. He's also said that the U.S. should have less of an interventionist policy. Shouldn't just run around the world invading places. Uh, but his appointment to the head of um, the head of the military, um, I forget this person's name, but he's basically employed. He's appointed someone who's real gung ho about let's go invade everyone. Yeah. So, what, what Donald Trump says and what he does are uh, yeah. two different things. I think that's an early um, thing to take away from his uh, election to the presidency. Now it's about that time um, where we tell you about all the sort of upcoming events that you can get involved in and help um, make the world a better place um, for participating in activism. Um, so tonight, um, there's actually two things happening simultaneously. Um, there'll be the Overland National Union of Workers Fair Australia launch. Um, um, basically, the Overland magazine is a, like a left-wing sort of um, publication um, where, um, that it was running, that partnered with the National Union of Workers to run the Fair Australian Prize, which is a $20,000 prize for fiction, essay, poetry and art exploring the theme, Our Common Future. Um, this lo- um, launch will be happening at 6pm. It says 5.30 there, but the date has since been amended to 6pm. Um, the Tough in Town, two, uh, which is in a Tough in Town. The Tough. Tough in Town, two, uh, 252 Swanson Street in the city. Um, also happening simultaneously, um, Rid Cinema will be presenting Fidel, The Untold Story, um, basically a documentary covering 40 years of the Cuban Revolution and contains some little scene footage. Um, the screening will be followed by a discussion. It's a fundraiser for Green Left Weekly and it will be happening um, at 6.30pm um, with meal from 6pm at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street in the city, opposite RMIT. Um, now, this Saturday, um, so, um, this Saturday, I think, is national, some kind of international human rights day this Saturday, isn't it? I'm saying, correct me if I'm wrong. I do not know. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, yeah, it is. Um, so there's a special, um, so there's a lot of human rights, yeah, it is human rights day. So um, this Saturday on is human rights day. So there's a number of different events or dealing with sort of anti-racism kind of themes. There'll be a Grandmothers Against Detention Christmas Walk at 12 noon, um, assembling at the steps of the St. Paul's Cathedral in Swanson Street. There'll be a Global Street Party at 12pm um, at the State Library. Um, this is an event organised by Shreds Hall, where they'll be rallying against racism at the State Library and then march to Shreds Hall. And then there'll be festivals commencing at um, Shreds Hall with you know food, music, food, cultural exhibitions and rides. Um, but there'll also be... Also happening all day at Trades Hall will be a number of different workshops going from 1pm to 6pm in the Trades Hall building um, based, and it will feature sort of like um, Aboriginal and Indigenous speakers, refugee speakers, all kind of exploring themes of anti-racism. Um, there'll be a Rock for Refugees. Um, we did an interview about this but, um, with the, one of the organisers. It'll be a fundraising gig for Refugee Action Collective and they'll be happening at 1pm at the Revenants Hotel 28 Napai Street in Footscray. Um, that's going from 1pm to 6pm. 
Um, and on Sunday, there'll be an end-of-year party to celebrate Sue Bolton's victory um, to the Moreland City Council. Um, join with Socialist Alliance and Green Left Weekly to celebrate a year of struggle and prepare for 2017. Um, there'll be music, speeches, food and drinks. Um, 12, and it'll be happening from 12 to 4pm at the Senior Citizen Centre, which is at 21 Harding Street at Coburg. And um, for more info, just phone 9639 um, 8622. Um, there'll be a teacher's ref- ritual, bring the refugees here. Um, we talk had a big, big deal of discussion about this. Um, it will be happening at 6 p.m. at the State Library, um, although I think the activist calendar on the Greenleaf Weekly website says it's at City Square, um, but it is has um, on Facebook. Um, the, um, it has been amended to being at uh, the State Library, and the reason for that is um, I think it was originally supposed to be at the Parliament House or at the City Square, um, but they've stated that numbers are too big and we need to have it in the State Library, which is good. Oh, yeah, that's a sweet problem to have. And um, so there'll be different speakers, including a former teacher in Nauru and a whistleblower, a teacher, um, and, uh, a teacher of refugees and asylum seekers, um, someone from the um, AEU, and there'll be other speakers as well. So that'll be happening from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Melbourne State Library. Fantastic. Um, next Thursday, um, there'll be a um, sort of fundraiser for FreeCR, uh, FreeCR Beyond the Bar CD launch, um, panel discussion on Aboriginal incarceration and prison radio, and music by Kutche Edwards. Um, that'll be at 6.30pm at the Gertrude Contemporary, 200 Gertrude St. Street, Fitzroy. And for more info, just phone FreeCR on 94198377. Um, next Friday, there'll be a tribute to Fidel Castro, um, and um, yeah, basically there'll be a tribute to Fidel Castro at 7:30 p.m. at the Trades Hall, um, in which is in um, the corner of Victoria and Ligon Streets in Carbon South. You can, and you can RSVP to 0431-064-549. Um, also happening on Invasion Day will be there'll be a big march. I think happening at 12:11 a.m. I don't don't actually have the particular dates, um, but there'll be a number of different events happening on Embrace Day and probably stay tuned for the first program of Green Left Radio in 2017 for the exact dates of everything. Um, but they'll be having from 1 to 6 p.m. and there'll be a shared spirit Indigenous music festival happening from 1 to 6 p.m. at the Treasury Gardens and there'll also be the Belgrave Survival Day happening from 12 p.m. at the Bothwick Park in Belgrave. Right, I think Sweet. I, and our last kind of thing is, I think also on Saturday there'll be an anti-flag concert, um, which is um, anti-flag shows a, a, celebrate, a celebration of a collective that cares more about just themselves, a space space where all can, we can be free to be who they are, free from racism, sexism, homo and, and transphobia, bigotry of any kind, anti-flag are the proud torchbearers for Progressive collectivism, radical change, and free expression with heavy social responsibility, and that's at 8 p.m. at the Max Watts at 125 Swanson Street. Ew! Get your punk on. Okay, that'd um, be rad. So we're getting. I'll play a quick announcement, and we'll be getting ready for our first interview of the program um, with Moria Williams from Free50.org, and she's. We're going to be having a discussion about the big sort of. Um, Campaign to stop Zardani, Colma. And, um, yeah, for listeners' information, there was actually a big snap action this mon- um, Monday morning, actually, and it attracted over a 1,000 people. Uh, in fact, I'll, it was actually only announced on Sunday afternoon, or sun- well, I first heard about it on Sunday afternoon, because I would have been there, and 
would have taken off work to attend it, but um, yeah, I heard about it too late and I wasn't able to do, um, take off work in time. Um, so yeah, that attracted over a thousand people and they rallied uh, outside Parliament. So yeah, really good snap action and that was organised by the AYCC. Okay, so we have um, Maura Williams on the line um, today with us. Um, yes, Maura is a community organiser with 350.org. Okay, so I guess um, what we're going to be talking about is um, the whole Adani coal mine. Um, so we want to start off by um, talking about the recent kind of decision that was passed in the Queensland government, Maura. Yeah, hi, and thanks for having me. Um, so, I mean, what this is, you know, what would be one of the world's largest coal mines and there's been communities right across Australia and internationally actually that have been fighting this for up to four years now. Um, and what we've seen recently, uh, which was a decision by the federal government to allocate a billion dollars to the mine, potentially through the North Australian Infrastructure Facility, I think has really outraged um, a lot of people to know that you know, their taxpayer dollars are going to a foreign-owned company in Adani to, to build a rail line that essentially is going to export climate change to the world. Hmm. Um, Moira, uh, who are some of the groups who have been mobilising locally and around Australia to make sure Carmichael doesn't get built over the last four years and obviously getting amped up again now? Yeah, so, I mean, the mine itself is located in central Queensland, um, but it would be uh, put on rail lines out through um, both Abbott Point and potentially uh, the Port of Gladstone. And so we've seen communities uh, stay, for example, in the Whit Sunday area that were really concerned uh, about the impacts on the Great Barrier Reef. The Whit Sunday area is one that relies heavily on Great Barrier Reef tourism. So there's a group there with Sunday Residents Against Dumping. They originally formed when the dredge spoil from the port was going to be dumped on the reef, but they're currently challenging the Abbott Point expansion in court. Um, and then we've seen communities down through the coast in Mackay um, also oppose the mine. And, um, of course, we have the traditional owners, the Wangan and Jangalingu people who have so far refused to sign the Indigenous Land Use Agreement uh, to give approval for Adani to mine their country in the mine uh, where Carmichael is proposed to be built. Hmm. And of course, as I, as I mentioned, this is an in, has been an international campaign. So there are groups like Rainforest Action Network in the US who are heavily involved in the campaigns to uh, get the banks so banks like Wells Fargo and other US banks to, to rule out any financing for this mine as well. Hmm. And speaking of financing, what's the what's the economics of this project? Because this is a, a very big, expensive series of giant holes, mm. um, and the world is not building that many new coal-fired power stations. Hmm. That's right. And so, I mean, when these projects were first Conceived back in 2012, we did have a fairly high coal price, and we're at the top of the mining boom. And this project is is very ambitious. It's one of the most remote coal basins in the world, um, and so it re- would require a lot of infrastructure over 300 kilometres of rail line. Um, and it's it's guessed that about nine billion dollars in financing is still required to get the mine up. Um, and that includes the port expansion, the mine itself, and the railway line. Uh, and 
more recently we have seen a, an increase in that coal price, so the coal price fluctuates over time. It's driven by global economics, and we have seen that. Um, we saw, I guess, over the last few years, a quite big dip down to $60 a tonne probably about 12 months ago, and over the last 12 months we've seen that um, bump up again um, as part of a bit of a cycle there. So that's where we're seeing, you know, uh, more renewed interest from people about this project going ahead. So it was quite a good um, interview with an economist, trying to remember his name, um, on the on the radio on Radio National this week, saying that you know there's still probably those prices need to stay high and go even higher for this to become economically viable. And we've seen it drop down to eighty dollars a tonne just recently. So there are still huge hurdles. Although the mine has almost all of its approvals um, from both Queensland and federal government. So that is the very disappointing thing that we continue to see both the Queensland government, the federal government back this industry that, you know, is destroying our climate and the world is moving away from. Um, but they, they don't have um, that finance. And so that loan from the federal government through the Northern Australian Infrastructure Facility is conditional on Adani. Um, getting to financial close, so lining up the rest of that money. Um, so it's still some big hurdles there, and that's something we we'll, we 350 will be focusing on. Hmm. And that North Australian Infrastructure Fund, was that set up as a slush fund for coal mines? Uh, I mean, there's some set criteria around uh, what it's for, essentially. Someone was telling me the other day, I didn't know this, that it was set up by... Uh, initial idea by Gina Reinhart um, and has been re-evolved into this facility, which, you know, uh, I'm not sure is true, but probably makes sense. I mean, essentially, uh, we know that northern Queensland uh, is struggling in terms of jobs, so we have places like Council that have 25% youth unemployment and they need a, a plan that will deliver jobs into the long term, into the future, and this facility is really should uh, be used for building infrastructure that's going to deliver those long-term sustainable jobs. So there's actually been a lot of secrecy around this process. We're not aware of the other projects that we'll put up for funding, um, but certainly it's our view that that money should be going towards uh, projects that deliver long-term sustainable jobs, you know, whether that's in manufacturing or agricultural health and education, and we shouldn't be spending taxpayer dollars popping up what is essentially one um, private company where a lot of the profits go offshore and, of course, it's destroying our climate along the way. Hmm. Um, I think one, um, I just want to have, I have a question about, um, specifically, you're from 350 and what is all the, what is um, the kind of work that is 350's um, currently doing in response to um, the, the Adani coal mine? Yeah, so um, we, this will be. We've been working on this campaign for a number of years now. I was working up in Mackay um, with communities up there to build peaceful resistance to the mine, um, and now I'm in Brisbane, and we're working primarily on that finance campaign. So we were part of a campaign calling on Combank um, just about a year ago to call it, rule out financing for the mine. We think there's an opportunity now to rule up, ramp up pressure on the remaining domestic banks. We've actually seen Combank not confirm that publicly, that they won't rule out the mine. So, And the um, NAB, the National Australia Bank, is the only bank that publicly has stated that they won't finance the mine. Um, 
So we'll be mobilising communities across the country along with uh, other groups like the Australian New Climate Coalition and Market Forces to really ramp up a big public campaign calling on these banks to rule out rule out all funding of fossil fuels. I mean, they have uh, committed to keeping the globe below two degrees and they really need to put um, their money where their mouth is and stop financing any new fossil fuel projects starting with this Adani mine. Hmm. And just the, the scale of this coal mine is is profound, isn't it? We're talking about a, a massive. Yeah, I think I think that's something that you know we talk about it as the mine, but it, it as originally um, conceived, it's six underground mines and six open cut coal mines, um, up to sixty million tonnes per annum. And so to give you know to give people perspective that. 40, some 40 kilometres long. So I think I read something in the paper today that if you stood on the tallest building in Melbourne, you wouldn't see the end of it. So that sort of gives the scale. This isn't a single mine. This is proposed to be a mega mine. And most mines in Australia are, are less than 10 million tonnes per annum. So this is really very huge um, and far beyond what we've seen uh, in Australia before and would be one of the largest in the world. Um, we have seen reports potentially of Adani downscaling that in order to try and get finance for it, so basically build a cheaper version of the mine to help them get finance. Uh, but we, what we know is that once, once they've built a rail line out to a mine like that and they've invested in all that infrastructure, uh, we, we, we'd see them scale that up over time. And so it's really critical that we don't see this massive new coal deposit in the Galilee Basin opened up. Um, and that's why I think we've seen um, such outrage from Australians, certainly being contacted by a lot of people this week who are very concerned about it. And I think, you know, we're ready to do whatever it takes to keep keep that pole safely in the ground. Mm. Um, I guess, um, I'm not sure if we went on um, into this before, but um, who were, who um, do you know what, who are the political parties that voted for this mine and um, what are the ones that voted against it in um, the parliament? Including cross branches and independents. You mean in Queensland? Or? Yes, in Queensland. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess that you know this was on the the Queensland agenda, um, and the impacts, particularly on the Great Barrier Reef, were high on the political agenda in Queensland for the last state election. Um, mm. And as a, as a result of that, um, you know, and as a result of that, we got some quite good commitments out of the Queensland Labor government who. Committed to no fun, no financing of the mine, um, no, um, and some really good protection measures for the reef. Um, but what's concerning is since then we've seen uh, the Queensland ALP do things like um, label the project critical infrastructure, which can fast track some of those last remaining approvals. They do have a lot of their major approvals. Um, and, and the Labor and certainly the LNP before Labor and Cow were pushing this very much gung-ho. Um, we saw a bit of a stop to that when Labor got in power, but essentially both, both Labor and the Liberal government are continuing to support the development of coal in Queensland. And what we really need to see from our government to show leadership in that area, we know that, you know, those regional areas in northern and central Queensland uh, are looking for long-term jobs, but we don't need a need another project that's going to rely on a boom-bust economy. We really need a better jobs plan for Queensland hmm. that doesn't rely on coal. 
for sure. Um, I saw a uh, email going around from uh, another 350 project, which is uh, Fossil Free Unis, mm. and I, I really liked it because it says um, the author is um, Ray, and he says, I'm still struggling with the idea that we actually live in a society where funding for healthcare, higher education, public housing and transport are being cut while a billion dollars is handed out to a dead-end industry. And then mm. he, he goes on to say, we need to create a society in which the fossil fuel industry is viewed as the destructive beast that it is. Um, and I, I think it's really good politically to be saying that, um, yeah, climate change and stopping this mine, it's not this kind of separate firewalled campaign on its own. This this relates to the entire political um, picture. It's, it's a social issue as well. Uh, I think mm. that's, that's a really good sort of standpoint. Frame. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite outrageous that we're, we have a government that's saying, you know, we need to cut things like essential services and yet we're willing to continue to hand out money to the industry that we know is destroying the planet. I mean, there's about $10 billion a year that goes to subsidising this industry. So I think that's a really key question for all Australians is, that, you know, where do they want to see their, their taxpayer dollars go? And I think, you know, groups like the Australia Institute have done some really good work demonstrating that you can invest money in things like building new schools and hospitals and they deliver um, deliver those jobs for the long term, but it doesn't seem to be in the in the mindset of Queensland politicians. Hmm. Um, all right. And how can people get involved and, and support and, and help stop this monstrosity being built? Yeah, so certainly there's a huge alliance of groups um, across the country working on this and we are in a critical stage now. If Adani are going to achieve financial close on this, it's likely that they'll do that over the next 6 to 12 months. So we're really looking to ramp up this campaign. Um, certainly folks can get involved with 350.org. You can sign up on our website and we have in Melbourne a local group, 350.org Melbourne, that's um, also heavily involved in the campaign. We, we really do rely on volunteers. Um, this is a, a, a network of volunteers right across the country, and particularly I want to be focusing on that on that finance element, um, kicking off early next year with a big launch of campaigns on the domestic bank. So, yeah, really encourage people to get involved. Staunch. All right. Well, uh, thanks each for talking to us, and uh, keep up the good work. Yeah. No worries. Thanks, guys. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for the interview. <coughs> All right. See you, Moira. See ya. See ya. Uh, Moira Williams there, community organiser with 350.org, which is one of the groups uh, spearheading the campaign to stop this giant new coal mine being built in remote Queensland. Carmichael. Yeah. All right. Um, so we're getting, oh, we only have a few minutes, um, but I guess I, I'll actually read a quick sort of news story, actually. Um, it's related to Green Left Weekly, actually. Um, um, but um, basically, um, there's a Green, um, one that, in the Green Left Weekly crew, um, there's a Green Left Weekly t- um, TV, Green Left TV, and a filmmaker of Green Left TV, um, activist filmmaker Zebedee Parks, um, who um, produces content for Green Left um, TV and um, won Best Short Documentary at the 2016 Sydney Indie Film Festival for his refugee documentary My, from My Friends in Detention 
Um, the film explores the impact of refugee activism in Australia on both refugees and activists. It draws on the true story of Perth-based refugee rights activist Sarah and her relationship with Cahill, Cahill a Tamil refugee who was um, jailed in Curtin um, Detention Centre, as well as being accepted in several festivals around the world. The film has been screened around Australia by activist groups, also winning Best Feature Documentaries at the festival held in October was Punks of West Papua, which details the campaign by Australian punk musicians in support of West Papua's struggle for freedom from Indonesian occupation. So, yep. Zeb! Um, so, yeah, we might, we might actually... That's one thing we might feature interview of in Green Left Weekly Radio sometime in the future, especially when um, we, especially when a film screening potentially gets organised in Melbourne, probably probably next year. Word. All right. Okay. So, um, thanks, yeah. listeners, for listening to Green Left Weekly Radio, um, and um, stay tuned for next week, which I think will be the final sort of program um, of, of the regular season. Of the regular season, um, before we go on summer break. Um, although there will be, we will be preparing some summer content, but it won't be the usual um, Green Left Weekly yeah. Radio.